Okay, who remembers what we've been talking about the last four Sundays? Advent. Advent. The word Advent means arriving or appearing, and it refers to the appearing or arrival of Jesus. It's usually the arrival of something we had hoped for or something we had predicted. And so during the past four Sundays, we talked about each of the first four candles. Anybody remember what any of those stood for? Grace, faith, hope, mercy. Very good. Wish I had, you know, like prizes or something. Huh? Yeah, the Moranville names, true. Well, if we had had a Christmas service, we would have talked about the fifth candle, and that's joy. But we didn't have a Christmas service, so we're going to talk about joy today. Um, And not just joy, but what keeps us from experiencing all the joy God has for us. And more specifically, I want to get into how our own unmet expectations keep us from experiencing that joy. Um, It's like our disappointments cripple us in that joy department. And God brought about the advent or the coming of his son in a way that was different from what people expected it to be. You know, he didn't come as the triumphant king. He came as an illegitimate baby. Um, He grew up to be a man who was despised, whom a lot of people thought deserved capital punishment. You, You don't get much lower than that. And he is coming back as a triumphant king, but that's not, you know, they were expecting that the first time around. And the good thing about that is that whatever level of pain or loneliness or rejection or failure you have felt, and you might feel like other people don't understand, you you can't wonder about Jesus. He knows. And I want to talk about the story of Lazarus in John 11. That's an episode in the life of Jesus that shows that he was a man of sorrows, as Isaiah called him. And it shows us how Jesus sometimes allows us to taste sorrow, but then he joins us in it, and he gives us victory over it. In verse 4 of John 11, Jesus offers words of comfort. He's gotten the news that Lazarus is sick, and he says, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And the truth is that if we let God do his job, everything the enemy intends for evil, God can turn to good. But then we get to verse 6, and the story doesn't look like it's going to get any better, because when they hear Lazarus is sick, Jesus just kind of hangs around for a couple more days, and Lazarus dies. And see, when we're following Jesus, that man of sorrows, there may be consolation along the way, but there's still going to be sorrow. Um, When you're following Jesus, you get in the way of danger and sorrow. In case you hadn't noticed, the rest of the world faces danger and sorrow, too. (laughs) So it's not like you're going to skip it by not following Jesus. And I don't know how long you've been following him, but when he calls us, he's not always calling us to things that are easy or safe or least painful. And I could go on and on about how that's a good thing, but don't have time for that. Um, Instead, Jesus often goes into those places where our response needs to be like Thomas. Um, Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas later on in the story. But around this time, Jesus says he's going back to Judea, and the other disciples say, Are you kidding? They're going to stone you there. They've already threatened to kill you. We can't go back there. And Thomas is the one who says, Look, let's just go back and die with him. 
Let's not sit here worrying about all this. Let's do what he's calling us to do, and if we die, we die. Big deal, you're going to die anyway, right? Um, so Jesus finally arrives in John 11.32. Mary is angry. She doesn't even want to go see him. I mean, he let her brother die as far as she's concerned. Have you ever had that kind of dialogue with Jesus where it's like, what's up with this? I did what I thought you wanted me to do, and now I'm in this mess. I don't, you know, what's up? And if you haven't had that kind of talk with Jesus, look forward to times where you'll get even more intimate with him because he can handle that. He understand that, that understands that's our way of trying to understand him and get to know him because he doesn't make sense a lot of the time. John 11.33 then introduces a new part of the story. It says, When Jesus saw Martha weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And I've heard people talk about how Jesus was sad because Lazarus had died. I don't think so. Jesus already knew Lazarus had died. Jesus had told the disciples that Lazarus had died. This was not a surprise to him. He, I've also heard that he was sad for the people that were sad. Okay, partly I think that's true. I think when it says he was troubled, I think what might have troubled is, him is he told them this will not end with death. But they didn't believe him. When Lazarus died, they thought that was the end. And they went through all the trouble and expense of the burial or whatever they did, and they, went through all, they started going through all the sorrow of saying goodbye. And it was unnecessary because he had told them it won't end here. And so, yes, he's sad because they're sad, but it's even more sad because it wasn't necessary if he, they had believed him. That's what I think anyway. I can't prove it to you, but when we get up there, we can ask. Rather than standing aloof, Jesus steps into the sorrow and sufferings of others. You know, he could have said, what's wrong with you people? I told you this wasn't the end, but he doesn't. He enters into their sorrow. And then in John 11:35 and 38, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And then John 11:39 and onward, he finally acts the way we hoped he would act. He finally goes ahead and does the big miracle and calls um, Lazarus out. And that's why he enters into our sorrow, to pull us out, to give us victory. But an interesting thing happens in the next chapter, John 12. Um, okay, Lazarus is alive. We're having a big party. Everybody's happy. We're back at Martha and Mary's house. Some people are cooking. Some people are eating, you know, just, just like old times. And then the sorrow starts all over again because by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus had stirred up all this talk. Now people were all talking about this and recognizing that Jesus was, in fact, special. And, well, the religious leaders weren't crazy about that, so he's actually put Lazarus in danger. Now the religious leaders want to kill not only Jesus but Lazarus too. So it's like, thanks a lot, God. And there's, there's that certain cycle um, Jesus sometimes lets sorrow come into your life, but he does it so he can give you the victory over it and so he can comfort you in it. I want to look at two historical feature, figures, and these were national leaders who lived during the same time, and they had something else in common. Yes, they were both leaders and famous and what have you, and they were living around the same time, but they also had a real long list of failures to their names. 
And many people are familiar with the hardships that Abraham Lincoln went through. Um, he had lots of highs and lows in his life. But there was another man living during that time, and he became the first and only, so far, Jewish Prime Minister of England. He was also a prominent author, and his name was Benjamin Disraeli. Now, you may have seen the list of Lincoln's failures. I want to look first at Disraeli's. Um, and I don't want to cover all of it. I just want you to look at the words that are highlighted. Can we get to that slide, maybe? The slide with Lincoln and Disraeli. There's Lincoln. Mm, there's Disraeli, and now we go to the next one. Okay. Look at, the, look at the words that are highlighted. Fails, loses money, debt, twice defeated, defeated again, another defeat, defeated, 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 gives up. Now, he had some successes along the way, but there's a whole lot of defeateds in there, right? And then let's look at Lincoln's, and he's got a, a similar list. And I've just put up their um, political careers, not their whole personal life and, and other things they did. Abraham Lincoln lost his job, defeated, failed, debt, defeated, fails, rejected, withdraws after failing nine times, hated, and murdered. And something I haven't highlighted in there, you know, right after he became president, states started seceding from the Union. And the mess existed before he became president. And I think he probably rationally knew that. But if somebody hired me as president of, say, a company, and as soon as I got the job, half the people quit, I would take it personally, okay? I would count that as somehow I have failed to give them enough hope to hang in there a little longer. Maybe he did. I heard someone say recently that the measure of a man is the, is the mysteries he is willing to live with. Not so much what he does, okay, but the mysteries he's living, willing to live with. When you have someone who prays for people for healing regularly, and people get healed, and then their own family member dies, but they still believe God is good, they still believe God heals, that's a mystery. Why didn't you hear, heal my dad or my child? That's a mystery that they're willing to live with and still believe God is good. That's an admirable man or woman. And I think with both of these guys... What's admirable about them isn't so much everything that they accomplished, but everything that they um, went through and kept trying anyway. To me, that's more admirable. So one of those mysteries is that while God allows sorrows and difficulty to come into our lives, his main intention for us is to experience fullness of joy. We're going to talk about some of the things that get in our way. I want to look at some scriptures in the gospel according to John. John 15:11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. John 16:24 and 33. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And there's John 17:13. I am coming to you now, he's talking to God, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
So he wants us to experience not just joy, but fullness of joy. And, in fact, we're instructed, if not commanded, to rejoice. But, see, joy isn't happiness. It's not what you feel when nice things happen. Joy is something you participate in. In Philippians 4, verses 4 through 8, and you need to remember that Paul was in jail when he's writing this. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. I'm going to pause there. I think when we think about anxious, we think about things in the future. You can be anxious about things that happened in the past and things that are happening right now. He says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. I want to pause there, too. Because sometimes our prayers become this list of what I want and what I need. And we're told over and over again that prayer needs to have praise and thanksgiving, wrapping it up. And the reason for that is where your focus goes. Let me give you an example. If I pray with praise and thanksgiving, it's going to sound something like this. Lord, I thank you for all the times that you've come through for me. Lord, I thank you for all the ways you've provided for me, that I've never been lacking the basic things. And even though I don't have a job right now, Lord, I know that you're going to continue to provide me because you're a great and wonderful God. And Lord, I need a job, and I thank you for all the great jobs you've brought me before and for the ones you have planned for me. And I call those in now in Jesus' name. Lord, I ask that you would give me the wisdom to know where to look for that job you have set up for me. Lord, give me the ears to listen to wise counsel and bring me counselors who will show me um, which way I should go. Do you see the focus of that? It's all the good things God has done, and he's going to do one more good thing for me. As opposed to, oh God, I don't have a job, I need a job, I'm going to be out on the street. Nobody's going to hire me. I'm going to die. You see the difference? Focusing on the need or focusing on the God. Okay. So, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So I want to ask you, what do you meditate on? And something that might help, everybody thinks and everybody talks. But in general, there's thinkers and there's talkers. You do a little bit more thinking or you do a little bit more talking. So what do you think about the most or what do you talk about the most? Is it the lovely, pure, praiseworthy things? I come from a family that always picks on whatever's wrong. That was my training. It's still an ongoing process for me to talk about and think about what's gone right instead of what's gone wrong. What might go right in the future instead of what might go wrong again. In the message version um, of the same, um, same uh, portion of Philippians, he says it this way, Celebrate God all day. Every day, I mean revel in him. The word revel comes from the same word as rebel or rebellion. Because a rebellion is really noisy, but it's noisy about bad things, right? There's violence and all that. 
Revel is really noisy in a happy way. It's a party, okay? Revel in him. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up any minute. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. If worry or bitterness is at the center of your life, you might reconsider that thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know, that, that, that's something I had to look at. There, um, not only was, was I concentrating on all the stressful stuff instead of God, but then I would turn to other things to get away from that stress. Like, like I would read uh, fiction books. Not that there's anything wrong with it. But in my case, I was doing it to get away from what was stressing me out. When I should have been running to God to help me deal with what was stressing me out, to console me and give me guidance. Once I started learning that, I started doing differently. Okay? Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Did you realize that joy is one of the main characteristics of the kingdom of God? You know, that kingdom we're supposed to be ushering in? There's Romans 14:17. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What do you think we're instructed to rejoice and to celebrate and revel? Because what we focus on creates our life. Proverbs 4.23 tells us our life is shaped by our thoughts, and the way the message puts it, keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. I want to look at Isaiah 60, um, verse 1 and 2, and I want to look at the Amplified and, and the Message versions. And the Amplified says, Arise from the depression and prostration in which circumstances have kept you. Rise to a new life. Shine, be radiant with the glory of the Lord, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and dense darkness all peoples, but the Lord shall rise upon you, O Jerusalem, and his glory shall be seen on you. The last song we sang talked about he clothes himself in light. Where does Jesus live? Where does he abide? in us, in our hearts. So he clothes himself with me. His intention is to clothe himself with light. He tells me I am the light of the world. Not just me, obviously, all of us that are in him. So to the extent that I keep making that light dark by focusing on all the negative and talking about all the negative and expecting all the negative, I'm leaving Jesus kind of naked out there. Here it is in the message. Get out of bed, Jerusalem. Wake up. Put your face in the sunlight. God's bright glory has risen for you. The whole earth is wrapped in darkness. All people sunk in deep darkness. But God rises on you. 
His sunrise glory breaks over you. I know this can sound real Pollyanna, like, Mariana, you've probably never had a problem in your life, and so this is why it's just, oh, well, just do it. Just be happy. Okay. Um, that's not why I'm saying it, besides being what God says, which should be enough. After a 35-year battle on and off with clinical depression, I know how hard it can be to put your face in the sunshine when you just want to stay under the covers. But I also know how critical it is. The harder it is, the more important it is for you to do it, for you to get out of bed, get out of the house, and go serve someone who's in worse shape than you. Your life might depend on it. Their life might depend on it. And so I don't know if it maybe sounds harsh. That's not how I mean it, but it's the most loving thing I could say to you if you're in that situation. But why do we get stuck on the past and all the sadness from the past? It's a song that says it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. Why is that? Oh. Partly because it's familiar. We know what happened in the past. You know, something a little bit less scary about the past and the future. I mean, I know what happened in the past. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen in the future. So sometimes it's easier to think about that. And also, we prefer to have evidence, and we have plenty of evidence about the past. I can tell you everything that happened in the past. I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future. In the future, what I have are God's promises. And so what happens if I just rely on God's promises and it doesn't come true? Then I look like a fool, right? At least if I expect bad things to happen to me because they've happened before, then, you know, at least I won't be surprised. I won't look foolish. This is the thinking in my own head. Maybe I'm the only one. We have the word of God to stand on, but sometimes we prefer to stand on that evidence of what we've already seen. It's also hard to let go of the past because we feel connected to the people in our past, and it seems disloyal to leave them behind, especially if they've been good to us. And if they've been bad to us, it seems unfair to leave them behind. Somehow we think our bitterness and resentment punishes the people who hurt us 10 years ago. I got news for you. They've moved on, you know. We also sometimes, we don't know what it looks like to live differently. That same song says... I don't know where this road is going to lead in and what we've been through. It's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. I'll give you an example. My mom was a worrier. I didn't know what it's like to live life as a worrier. I didn't know what it looked like to live life as someone who trusts that God's going to work things out. I had to learn to do that. I had to learn to do it by getting around people who live by faith. I know that makes sense. And then I think we're getting to the big two. First, we're afraid that we don't have what it takes to change, to make things better in the future. Yet we know that with God all things are possible. We know it in our head, but we don't really believe it. Um, Prime Minister Disraeli said, taking a new step, uttering a new word is what people fear most. Isn't that amazing? Taking a new step, uttering a new word, is what people fear most. And then we already feel overloaded and overwhelmed. Don't tell me to think about the future. Don't tell me to do anything extra. Don't tell me to go put my face in the sunshine. This blanket's about all I can handle right now. So, to deal with those last two things, it might help to look at people who felt overwhelmed and who felt incapable 
of dealing with the challenges in front of them. And I'm talking about the story of the Hebrew spies who, went, who were sent to check out the promised land. You might have heard me talk about this before. I think God wants to hear us, us to hear it again. This is in Numbers 13. Ten of the spies came back saying, We went to the land to which you sent us, and oh, it does flow with milk and honey. Just look at this fruit. The only thing is that the people who live there are fierce. Their cities are huge and well fortified. and We can't attack those people. They're way stronger than we are. We scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that swallows people whole. The land of the sinkholes. Everybody we saw was huge. Why, we even saw the Nephilim giants. Alongside them, we felt like grasshoppers, and they looked down on us as if we were grasshoppers. Some other versions say we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. The way we look at ourselves is not necessarily the way God looks at us. We believe a lie, and that's what cripples us. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, saw exactly what the others saw, but they interpreted it differently because their focus was on what God could do through them, not on what they could do. So here's how the story continues in Numbers 14. The whole community's in an uproar. They're all wailing about, why didn't we just die in Egypt? We're just going to die now. Everybody's going to die. Let's just kill our leaders, get new leaders that will take us back. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in front of the entire community, gathered in an emergency session. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, members of the scouting party, ripped their clothes and addressed the assembled people of Israel. The land we walked through and scouted out is a very good land, very good indeed. If God is pleased with us, not if the giants are bigger than us, if God is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land that flows, as they say, with milk and honey. And he'll give it to us. Just don't rebel against God. And don't be afraid of those people. Why, we'll have them for lunch. They have no protection, and God is on our side. Don't be afraid of them. That's the message version. And it's, it's interesting to me, it says don't rebel against God, because we think of rebelling against God is like, okay, I'm lying, cheating, here and there. You know, that's rebellion. They were just not believing. Like the people around Lazarus didn't believe that death wouldn't be the end. Just then the bright glory of God appeared at the tent of meeting. Every Israelite saw it. God said to Moses, how long will these people treat me like dirt? How long refuse to trust me? And with all these signs I've done among them, I've had enough. I'm going to hit them with a plague and kill them. But I'll make you into a nation bigger and stronger than they ever were. And fortunately, Moses speaks up and talks to God, and God doesn't quite wipe him out. He just doesn't let him enter the promised land. But I wonder if that's how God feels with us. When, when we're so sure that things are going to go bad, even though he's told us that he's going to take care of us. You see up there saying, Mary Hannah, you're treating me like dirt. And finally, one last reason why people don't let go of the past is that a different future might threaten my idea of who I am. If I believe I'm small and weak like a grasshopper, I'm probably going to resist anyone who tries to tell me differently. And this is sometimes called victim identification. And when someone refuses to step out of a victim role, because that's who they really believe they are, um, and there's some kind of payoff in that role, 
I, I first learned about this when I was studying about alcoholism and found that there are times when alcoholics will realize that things need to change, go through a 12-step process or what have you, quit drinking, start learning new ways of living, and yet the spouse is now angry. Because, see, let's say I'm the spouse. You're the bad guy. You're the abusive drunk. I'm the good guy. Well, what happens when you quit being the bad guy? Where's my identity? Now, that's silly because my identity is a whole lot more than, you know, who's next to me. But if you embrace that as your identity and you get sympathy for that or there's some sort of payoff for that, it can be hard to let that go. And I don't mean to say that everyone who's in a victim situation can just snap their fingers and snap out of it, okay? But here's the victim's basic stance. It's that he or she is not responsible for what happened, is morally right, is not accountable, is forever entitled to sympathy, and is justified in feeling moral indignation for being wronged. And depending on the situation, there's probably some truth to that. There may even be a whole lot of truth to that. But we do find ourselves in situations where it's not 100% true. We're maybe a little tiny bit responsible, maybe for staying in the situation. I'm glad Jesus didn't focus on how he'd been wrong. I'm glad he didn't stick to that identity as the innocent victim on the cross. You know, he wasn't responsible for what happened. Okay, it's our sins that put him up there. He was morally right, but he chose to be accountable. And he didn't worry about being entitled to sympathy. And he didn't stay feeling morally indignant because in that case, we'd all go to hell, <laughs> starting with me. So I'm kind of glad he didn't, you know, embrace his identity as the victim on the cross. But getting back to joy. Yeah, that. Did you know that the Bible mentions grief 30 times? And don't show it yet, but how many times do you think it mentions joy? A thousand? <laughs> Not quite a thousand. You looked at my notes. No, you didn't? Okay. It mentions joy 188 times. 30 for grief, 188 for joy. God seems to have more of a focus on the happy stuff. Now, remember Prime Minister Disraeli? He said this. Grief is the agony of an instant. The indulgence of grief the blunder of a life or a lifetime. I suffered as a child abuse and neglect and what have you. That was grief for that time. If I continue to carry that into the next 50, 60, 70 years, that would be the blunder of my lifetime. Now, if I bring it up to show what God has done, to show the positive that has come from that, to identify with someone else and show them that things can get better too, that's different, okay? But if I hang on to continuing to relive that pain, that's the blunder. And that doesn't mean you don't work through it, okay? It doesn't mean you just live in denial. There's a difference. Often the main thing that keeps us from experiencing fullness of joy is that we refuse, for whatever reason, to let go of the past to let go of our past failures, the injustices we suffered, the rejection we suffered. But if we hang on to those things, we don't have any space to hang on to God. 
The key to fullness of joy is experience ever-deepening intimacy with God. And that requires a couple of things. One of them is contact, you know, time and attention. The other one is holiness. And holiness isn't just, I don't do the big bad things. It's constantly setting God on the throne of my life. And as long as I keep looking in the rearview mirror, I'm not looking at what's in front of me. I'm not looking at what's ahead. I'm not looking at God. I'm looking in the past. Holding on to past wrongs and bitterness is sin, and that sin prevents joy. We've got to put the past behind us. At the end of a year is a good time to resolve to do that. The fact is, regardless of how we might feel, that God is intimate and involved. You can look at Psalm 139. And that he's continually doing a new thing. I'm going to read Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. This is the message. Forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. Be alert. Be present. I'm about to do something brand new. It's bursting out. Don't you see it? There it is. I'm making a road through the desert, rivers in the badlands. God's trying to show us this new thing he's doing and where he's leading us, and we keep focusing, oh, it's a desert. I'm going to die. God is doing something new with you and with me if we'll just pay attention. And I want to give you an example. Um, If we can get to the next one. This is a lady named Zoe Koplowitz. She's 60 years young. She has multiple sclerosis, and she's become famous for running every year in the New York City Marathon. Not quite running, but... And the the New York City Marathon is just over 26 miles, if you can imagine that. And here's how that happened, in her own words. She says, last year I ran my 20th New York City Marathon. It took me 29 hours to go the 26.2 miles that some people do in three hours. But in 2000, it took me 33 hours. The way I look at it is if I keep this up for the next 30 years or so, I'm bound to finish first. I was diagnosed back when doctors told people with MS not to exercise. So I worked at a desk job and went home at night to rest. I was completely sedentary and so sorry for myself. But one day, I was taking a vitamin C pill and started to choke. My life flashed before my eyes, and then a light bulb went on. I had been restricting my life because I thought MS was going to kill me. I thought, if I'm going to die, I might as well do it my way. I have a TV set theory of life. I got my breath back and decided it was time to change the channel and reinvent myself. That was when I decided to run my first New York City Marathon. Only one problem. I'd never run a day in my life, and I was on crutches. So she found a running group that helped people on crutches and uh, eventually ended up participating in the marathon. She finishes last every year, but she finishes. And now she's traveling and giving motivational speeches, and she even wrote a book. And this is what she says about the power of circumstances and beliefs. And, you know, she's had some tough circumstances. No matter how great our dreams are and how good our plans are, somewhere along the way we're bound to hit what runners call the wall. It's that point in life when we feel that we have absolutely nothing left to give and we still must go on. Walls come in many shapes and sizes. 
They can be personal, professional, financial, or health-related. The one thing they all have in common is the fact that they are infrastructures built of the mortar and brick of circumstances and beliefs. You take your circumstances, you slap them together with some beliefs, and you've got yourself a wall, and you made it. Every hour of every day offers us an endless array of choices. This is what she says. Chances and consequences. For better or for worse, we make up whatever it is we make up about them. Ultimately, it's never really about the circumstances. It's about the context we hold them in, the power we vest in them, and most important of all, what we believe about them. Many people are vanquished and totally devastated by unexpected setbacks, while others utilize those same circumstances as a challenge to create life-affirming solutions. We must never underestimate the power of our beliefs. And then she says, beliefs are not always factual and frequently aren't even logical. They are simply an organizing principle which we use to explain and give meaning to our experiences. We can change our beliefs at any given moment. When we challenge their validity and restructure their content, we take that all-important step of counteracting the power of adversity and ultimately begin the process of dismantling the wall. That's a whole lot of words, basically. Think about the things you believe that hold you back. I will never be successful because. I will never be loved because. I will never be healthy because. And then you look at that belief and see what part of it is false. Looking at scripture is a good way to start figuring that out. But that's what she's saying. If it's holding you back, there's probably some part that is false. Now, she still can't run, okay? There's some very real circumstances that keep her from running. But the issue wasn't running. Her belief was, I can't be active. I can't finish a marathon. And obviously that belief was wrong. So remember Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli? He said something similar. He said, man is not the creature of circumstances. Circumstances are the creatures of men. We are free agents, and man is more powerful than matter. Circumstances are beyond human control, but our conduct is our own power. And he also said some other good stuff. He said, what we anticipate seldom occurs, but what we least expect generally happens. Never take anything for granted. Change is inevitable. Change is constant. He said, there's no education like adversity, and he would know. Despair is the conclusion of fools. People win success out of death. If you look at all the failures, people failed you, you failed yourself, life failed you, whatever. And your conclusion didn't say it. Life is too short to be little. Little things affect little minds. Nurture your minds with great thoughts. To believe in the heroic makes heroes. And then the last thing he said, I, I thought this was really sad. That's not the last thing he said, but the last one I'm quoting. Most people die with their music still locked up inside them. And that goes for an awful lot of people I've known that have died. God put a song in them and it never came out. Usually because of fear, sometimes because of bitterness. Don't do that. Be like Paul, who understood that in him lived the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, and he lives in us. This is what he said in Philippians 3, 
11 and 14. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already all obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If you can only do one thing this coming year, it might be to forget what's behind and press forward to what's ahead and not be scared of it. When I was preparing this lesson, I was at the same time watching Joyce Myers, and she said something that fits, so I had to stop the video and back it up so get the quote right. This is what she said. You can be pitiful or powerful. Don't go dragging your morbid past into the future God has for you. Don't just stand in church and sing songs with the word glory in them, like we did today, and then gather up your garbage and leave for one more trip around the mountain. She says, don't go dragging your morbid past into the future God has for you. Well, what is the future God has for us? Remember when Jesus stood up in the temple and started reading or quoting the scriptures from Isaiah that said he, God had sent him to preach good tidings to the poor and heal the brokenhearted and all that. What follows is the purpose for why he's healing us. Okay? He's healing us so that we will do certain things. It is Isaiah 61, verse 4 and 7. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. He's talking about these brokenhearted people he's come to heal. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Instead of your shame, they shall have, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Okay, I want you to look at that again. What do you get instead of confusion? What? Joy. So what's the opposite of joy? Confusion. So if I'm not experiencing fullness of joy, it's not because I'm a bad person, and it's not because of all the bad stuff happening to me. It's because I'm confused. The Word of God says God is with me, and he wants to be with me in a very intimate way. The Word of God says that God is doing a new thing in me and giving me joy where I had sorrow. In Ephesians, he says we are his masterpiece, the stroke of his genius. And the word of God says I need to renew my mind daily and that I renew it by meditating on good things, by wrapping my prayers in praise and thanksgiving. Okay, that, that requires my um, action, my participation. And I'll tell you what was a turning point for me. This was 1995-ish. I was, I had been encouraged to apply for a job, and I was intimidated. I mean, I thought I could do it, but I, this was a job where I didn't just have to do it. I had to do it, like, really, really well, or it would be really, really bad. <laughs> and, of course, I'm thinking of all the times I've failed in the past. And I had to find some way to, to get the courage to go ahead and apply for the job and accept it and get started with it. And so I found a song, and I started playing it. 
over and over and over again. I'd play it in the car every day. This was back in the day of cassette tapes in your car, and so I actually wore it out. It was just this one song I was playing, but I wore it out. And it was the uh, soundtrack to Top Gun, um, the Danger Zone song. And there's a line in it that says, you'll never say hello to you. You'll never know what you can do. I realized I would never meet me, who God intended me to be, until I was willing to go for broke. To just put aside all my fears and all the past failures and just go for it. And what's funny is that he had already taught me this when I was 10. Um, I was kind of a pudgy, unathletic kid, and nobody had ever taught me how to breathe while running, and so running was hard for me. But I realized that I really didn't know how far I could run, and I wanted to finish the 360-yard dash, you know, one time around the field. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to run until I pass out or finish because that will be the proof that this is as far as I can go, right? If I haven't passed out, then I can keep going. Made sense to me. So it hurt like heck, but I made it all the way around. And that proved to me that I could, in fact, finish one trip around the field. Okay. And so here I was all these years later having to realize that again, until I push as far as I can push, I don't know how far I can go. And so if God's calling me to do something and it's scary and I'm convinced I can't make it, I don't know until I try. And part of why I don't know is because I have no idea how big God is. I may know what bad shape I'm in, but I have no idea how big God is and what he can do through me. And that's kind of like the, um, the lady with MS. It wasn't her condition that was holding her back. It was her false beliefs. You know, I, I would dwell on the past because I thought that would keep me safe. If I look at where I got hurt before, I can avoid getting hurt again, but I still got hurt. So I was being crippled by this instead of being protected by it. So I was confused. And I say, let's not go into this new year confused. What do you think? Let me tell you what's going to happen next Sunday. On the first Sunday of the year, we usually have a wooden cross here somewhere. And um, we have the opportunity to nail things to that cross. We write stuff on slips of paper, and then we literally nail those papers up to the cross. Nobody ever reads them. It's just between us and God. And it's something we're giving over to him. Okay. Um, and then on Easter Sunday, those papers disappear, just like our sins and failures disappear with Jesus' death and resurrection. So, um, David, if you could hand those out. There's no particular magic about these little pieces of paper, but I want you to have this this week if you put it in your wallet or something you always have with you. And when something comes to mind, write it down. And the idea is ask God, going into this new year, what he wants you to let go of, what you need to nail to the cross. And it might be things you need to forgive. It might be things that you need to ask for God's forgiveness and accept it. Or it might be things where you need to forgive yourself. And you don't have to write it out in a lot of detail. For example, let's say I need to forgive my dad for something that happened when I was young. I can just put dad, and, and I'll remember. Um, or if there's something I need to forgive myself for, because I disappointed myself by not being perfect at something or other. Okay. And so this gives you a week to ask God to bring that to mind. And you can start the new year free of that. So we're going to start the new year by putting our past behind us. 
And another physical way we want to do this is by starting the new year out of debt as a church. And you should all have received um, at least some emails about that. And then we'll, we've also had it in the program. It is exciting that we are like this close to getting out of debt. That we can start the new year without having that burden that we've carried for years. I would really like to know that the money I contribute is going towards today things and not five years ago things, you know. Um, so, um, I want to pray, and then, do we have a basket? What I'm going to ask is that you bring your gifts to the front and put them in the basket. Um, usually in the Bible it says we bring our offerings, not we pass a plate. So, not that there's anything wrong with it, but um, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you that your intention for this year is to bring us further out of confusion. I thank you for all the freedom you've already brought us, Lord, all the light that you've brought into our lives and into our minds and our hearts and the things that you have freed us from. And Lord, I ask that you would um, show us how to put aside grief and regret. Lord, that you would make that an easy thing for each one even if it's things that we've been carrying around for 40, 50 years. Lord, we want to embrace more of you. We don't want our hands full of all this junk. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. I thank you that that's the, the kind of life that you have intended for us. Even when we go through sorrows, that we come out of it rejoicing. So, Lord, I ask that your spirit would fall now, that you would guide each one on, on how they should participate, and that this would be a time of rejoicing for us as a congregation. And, Lord, that that rejoicing would turn into more and more and more parties as different families and people get out of debt in the coming months. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. Amen. Okay, so we have a little basket. And after we do this, then... I want to close with a blessing. Take your time, not all at once. Nobody get hurt trampling down here. This is one of those things where a year ago you'd ask the board if we'd be out of debt by the end of this year. I mean, I think we would have said, gee, that'd be nice, but I don't know that anybody would really have been real confident. Um, but God does incredible things, you know. Okay. I want to close with a blessing from Hebrews Chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. I just want to pray this over you, if that's okay. May God, who puts all things together, makes all things whole, who made a lasting mark through the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of blood that sealed the eternal covenant, who led Jesus, our great shepherd, up and alive from the dead, now put you together, provide you with everything you need to please him. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it for me. We're going to have an opportunity if you need ministry, prayer, that kind of thing. Um, 
ask some of our folks that are trained in prayer to come up to the front. And